Welcome to the very first episode of the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics here at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. And my co-host is the one and only Karen Henson. Hey, everyone. I am the one and only. You are. It's you so are. good to be here. That's awesome. What, uh, what do you do around here, Karen? You know, I pretty much do all things women and women's Bible study and curriculum. Mm. Yep, that's, that's my job. I, I like that. it. Love it. <laughs> well, hey, in this podcast series, we're going to tackle a bunch of different issues from discipleship to theology to apologetics. But specifically for this first one, we're going to be having a conversation with the guys from the Pillar Seminary in Omaha, Nebraska, on the importance of reading scripture in context. So we hope you enjoy our conversation. We're just going to jump right in with our guests who are joining us from Omaha, Nebraska. They are three quarters of the faculty of the Pillar Seminary. And we've got Eric Smith and Yo. Scott Booth Yo. and Dan Lowry. Hey, Dan is uh, an old buddy of mine from my master's degree at Dallas Seminary, and now is on faculty up there with those guys. But I started listening in on these guys and following them about a year ago, and they've been really helpful. And so I just wanted to share them with you guys. And uh, so today's topic, we're going to be talking about a reading scripture in context. So Eric, I'm going to push it over to you, and why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about the pillar and um, how you guys are unique from other seminaries in regard to the issue of context. Yeah, well, uh, first off, thanks for having us. Yeah, um, man. I'm uh, the founder of Pillar Seminary, which I'm, I'm not trying to be intentionally abrasive, but was basically launched out of frustration at the level of training that currently exists in our seminaries and Bible colleges today. I felt that we could do a better job and so I hit a point where it was either continue griping about the way things are or try and... Because that's always real productive. New. Yeah, 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 there you exactly. go. Exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, so that's what, what we try to do. Um, our full title is the Pillar Seminary for Contextual Leadership. And the contextual thing is a recognition of the importance, not only of historical, cultural context of biblical times for understanding scripture, but also then uh, how that translates into operating within whatever cultural context God puts you in, in your ministry. Mm. Uh, so uh, our basic aim is uh, to take people who are already in ministry and work with them to help them thrive uh, in their ministries. Where did you study? What's your, um, where'd you get your PhD? What did you emphasize? Have you done any postdoctoral work? That sort of thing. Uh, I did my PhD, uh, through uh, Trinity College, the University of Bristol. I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> I mean, a PhD will do that to you. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. And I did some of the work uh, at the University of Chicago, um, and I did some of the work at Cambridge. So, uh, but, but my dissertation advisor was out of Trinity College of the University of Bristol. Uh, that's actually how I met Dan. We met uh, in, um, at Cambridge. Nice. Um, was your faculty guy uh, Gordon Winham? Yes. Nice, nice. What'd you do uh, at Chicago? Oh, uh, I did Sumerian. So uh, my primary area of study is, uh, I guess, well, let me put it this way. What I wrote on was ancient Near Eastern uh, mythographic works and what kinds of implications that might have for interpretation in Genesis 1 to 11. Nice. So I had to learn... Uh, 
some different really dead languages, uh, one of which was Sumerian. And uh, so that, that was where the University of Chicago came in. Yeah, so help our, help our listeners understand what is Sumerian and what is mythographic. Okay, so first off, Sumerian is the most amazing. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, look, here's the deal. If, you, if you're ever wondering if you're a nerd, if you've done PhD-level work on a language that's been dead for 4,000 years, the answer is probably <laughs> yes. Yes, you are. And, uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, so, um, so that was it. But honestly, what got me into the study was... Uh, scripture. So I grew up in the church, and I grew up pretty familiar with Scripture. And then uh, when I went to seminary uh, in Chicago, which is where Scott and I met, um, I, I had the opportunity to take a bunch of classes that had to do with with contextual issues, you know, uh, things around Scripture. And it was helping me understand the Bible. I, the, the, the thing that was so cool is I was watching scripture really come alive as I was getting into all of the cultural background mm -hmm. stuff. And it, it was making my reading of scripture uh, just just come alive in new ways. And that, that was very exciting to me. And that was actually what led to the PhD studies because I just felt like I had a lot more to learn and a lot more to dig into. And so Sumerian came about uh, because... Um, Many of the ancient Near Eastern texts that sort of set the tradition for how we do st storytelling in the ancient Near East um, were in Sumerian. So it, it was really, for me, just an issue of, well, I want to understand Scripture, and Scripture comes from a particular time and place, so I need to get into that time and place, and I'm interested in how they tell their stories, so I need to learn Sumerian so I can read these stories. And it, that, that was really how it came about for me. The, the end goal was to really be able to understand scripture as well as I possibly could. Yeah, so connect the dots for our audience between Sumerian, and you, you keep using the phrase ancient Near East. Probably some of our listeners have no idea what that even is. So connect, why, why does it matter for someone who's reading the Bible to understand Sumerian, and what is the ancient Near East? Usually when we talk about ancient Near East... It's like the Near East, but ancient. <laughs> Yeah. Done. Yeah. Next Done. <laughs> yeah. So, so the Near East is like uh, like modern day from from like modern day Iraq up into like Turkey down through like Lebanon, Syria into Israel. Is that what you're that area down into Egypt? Egypt. Yeah. Go, Egypt, yeah. go Iran. Go Iran. Yeah. Go Iran. to Iran and Ethiopia as well. There you go. Okay. And that ought to cover it. Yep. Awesome. And then I would also include the islands like uh, Cyprus and Crete and stuff like that. That also applies. Perfect. Yeah, it's basically just the world. It's of the world. Yeah, the world of the Bible. Yep. Yep. Perfect. So, Scott, man, where where did you study? How did you get into this? And uh, what is the awesomest language? Oh, just, no. Uh, Look, he's going to screw that up. He's going to get it wrong. You're setting him up for failure. Oh, gosh. All right. Um, well, I did my PhD at Trinity in Chicago. Um, I studied with uh, Lawson Younger, who is great to study with, and just, uh, man, guy is a stinking <laughs> encyclopedia. I love it. Um, Scott uh, just finished his doctorate. He worked on it for like 13, 14 years. Shut yeah, up! nice. And, uh, That's what I'm talking so he, about. It really hadn't sunk in yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. I did... Uh, 
my work on how to handle complicated data sets to give you a reliable picture. And Dan's laughing at me still. It's basically the We're both laughing at you, Scott. <laughs> All right, look, here's the thing that your listeners may care about is uh, there's a lot of stuff from information from archaeology and a lot of information from inscriptions, but there is not an agreed upon way about how to combine that information to give you a reliable picture of what happened yep, in good. the ancient times. And so uh, what happens, what can happen is you get one scholar thinks one way and another scholar thinks another, but since they're doing it, the com combination in kind of very different ways, uh, you can get really different pictures. So you can have uh, a conservative scholar think one thing and a very liberal scholar think another thing, mm. and they're just arguing uh, because they don't have an agreed-upon method about how to do a thing right in the first place. So yeah, when you right. watch something like uh, on the Discovery Channel, the History Channel, you should know that uh, the, the people who are... Well, first of all, the people who are being interviewed probably themselves have very different ways of doing it. Um, but just because they say one thing on there doesn't mean that's the thing. Yeah. Because the discipline is yep. is very new. Mm. Archaeology hasn't been around for 600, 1,000 years. Like, this is a new idea. Mm. So everything is new. These inscriptions are new. And, and people are still trying to figure out how to combine all the information. We nice. did do a podcast on this. And as I recall, Dan's eyes were really dry. <laughs> let, me, let me just say something here. Uh, <laughs> might be the first time I've thought about Scott's dissertation. And I find it kind of interesting. Um, yeah. I was just Go on, to work Dan. on synagogues for class prep. And the, the difference between the archaeological record and inscriptions uh, yeah. I found to be a bit discordant and mm. a little frustrating. Yep. So I might follow up with Scott after this <laughs> and uh, try yeah. and learn something from it. So I'm talking about... Well, I mean, we, wait, wait, wait! Interesting language. I didn't get to answer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please, man, proceed. No. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think the most interesting. Well, if you're looking for like the most data-rich language that oh, you can learn the most from, yeah, that that's was, what he was asking. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be Akkadian. Mm. It's the most interesting in terms of still trying to figure out what's going on. Definitely hieroglyphic Luvian. Look it up. It's crazy. Mm. Google that. Mm. If you can figure out how to spell hieroglyphic. <laughs> or Luvian. I was yeah. Or Luvian, yeah. Luvian. No, Luvian has Either a W because of the, yeah. the Germans. There you go. The that's, Germans. That's awesome. <laughs> the Germans. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. And then also, Scott, I was a little bit shocked, Daniel, like this. I was a little bit shocked when y'all did your podcast on Revelation to learn that you'd never read Revelation before. <laughs> <laughs> What the heck? And, and second of all, I also thought it was fascinating because you brought a lot of Old Testament emphasis and background to the book without all the baggage of the eschatological particulars. Without the baggage Wait, of having yeah. actually read it. Exactly right. <laughs> all, right. all right, let me explain No that. prior yeah. influence let, on his life. Let me explain yeah, what's going yeah, on. Yeah. All right, here's what's going on. When I became a Christian when I was 15, and I listened to people talk, and I thought stuff was interesting. But when they got to Revelation, I found everybody <laughs> completely unreasonable. Yeah. Uh, it just—it doesn't matter what they were saying. I just found them to behave oddly. <laughs> so I decided I wouldn't read the book until I was equipped to read it. There you go. Uh, and then I kind of forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and, that day. And, uh, Did you forget about Revelation or just like the whole New Testament? 
Well, no. Definitely <laughs> the latter. Definitely the latter. No. It was revelation. Well, okay, so when I remember Scott, there's this guy named Jesus. And <laughs> I'm just stressed what he did. Uh, so uh, part of getting at Revelation was trying to figure out what's going on with the apocalyptic genre, which put me into figuring out uh, prophetic stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. there was a lot of background work that needed to be done. Yeah. Uh, and then I got sucked into that black hole until Dan said, you need to go read this. Yeah, you That's took the long I road. Okay. I like it. I did. I like it. Good stuff. All right, Dan Lowry. You're the resident New Testament guy, I guess. At, we can at, just at, move uh, on at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the microphone. <laughs> But uh, but you did your dissertation on Genesis one to eleven, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Here. Yeah. We just want to point out our New Testament yeah. scholar did his dissertation. <laughs> confusing. On Genesis 4. No, you this may also need to be. explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, I probably was introduced to Jesus and the New Testament before Scott. So I've mm. got a little more experience. There in you it. go. Um, I, I did my doctorate with Gordon Wenham and Alan Millard um, and. Eric and I shared Wenham as a supervisor, and so we met each other that way. And it was also in the context of Scripture. I studied the context of early Scripture, but uh, the method was what made its imprint on me, I think. And, and the, the like, like Eric said, just getting to understand and make sense of the context, the world of Scripture, really just allows you to make so much more sense of Scripture. So I love it. That, that was, uh, I did master's thesis on that sort of stuff and then more work like that uh, at the doctoral level and then i taught for a couple years in undergraduate setting in old testament and then became a pastor for six or seven years and that i believe is where i started to read the new testament (laughs) (laughs) a bit more thoroughly i probably ought to preach out of the new testament every once in a while (laughs) yep so uh so that that uh, might help explain some of the shift. Just really fell in love with the church and and all of Scripture, and really enjoyed getting to teach and understand all of it. Eric wants to interrupt. Yeah, I mean, if I can add that, we make fun of Dan for having an Old Testament PhD and being our New Testament prof. But but on our part, that was actually very intentional. We uh, wanted to find someone who could teach the New Testament, but had really good, rigorous training in the Old Testament, because nice. so many things uh, about Jesus, his life, or about Paul, and the stuff Paul talks about, there, there's a foundational understanding that they're assuming one has, and and we felt like we would have a, a better shot at really presenting that well to our students if our New Testament prof was rigorously trained in the Old Testament. So totally. we, we give him a hard time, but it, it, it actually was intentional. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, that's a great... Never, let's never bring up the positive stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's, Scott's very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> uh, also, well, Eric and I are sitting really closely together because we're sharing a microphone I love and it. headphones. So oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> Whatevs. All right, so uh, that's actually a really great transition into our topic today, and this is why we wanted to talk to you guys, because I find as an equipping pastor at a church that uh, encounter people a lot of times that just kind of open the Bible and start reading because maybe they're new to the faith, or maybe they've been a Christian for a long time, and they've just been told, hey, you're just supposed to read the Bible. And, and a lot of times it gets phrased as, you're just supposed to read your Bible. And so people open the Bible and they just start reading it. And they kind of like, if, if you start in Genesis, then you're like, 
oh, okay, cool. Like, this is telling me how God created the world. Awesome. Um, okay, now there's some, whoa, why is God so angry? Like, he's killing everybody? And then there's a Tower of Babel, and he's he seems like he's ticked off there. And then, whoa, these people are jacked up. And you get to Exodus, and now God's liberating his people. But then there, you get into some law stuff there. And then um, by, by the time you're done with the Torah, which is, as you guys know, the first five books of the Bible— then if people haven't already stopped reading, they're at the very least like really confused about what's going on. But yeah, just give me Jesus. To, yeah, totally. There's very much that attitude of man, I you know, I hear this as an apologist. A common question that I get around here is, you know, hey, how is the God of the New Testament the same as the God of the Old Testament? Like the God of the Old Testament just seems angry and vindictive and malevolent and a bully. So I think my first question to you guys is when you open the Bible, one, should you just read it like that? And, and then I think a f- close follow-on question is, how do you read the Bible? So let's start there. I'll handle this everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess a, a clarifying question there, too, is just like, what are the rules? Like, when you come to read the Bible, should we just open it up and start reading and be confused, or what's going on? I think the, the big... The big rule when you open your Bible is that you are, uh, like a good metaphor, be you're walking into someone else's house of a very different culture, hmm. and yeah. and and when you, like, if you were to have, for example, if you had a, a, an immigrant family, and they invited you over to dinner, and you walked into their house, you would be full of all kinds of. You'd walk in with all manner of grace, right? You would think, you know, this is a different culture. It's a different world. They may do things different from me. I met this, I met this person. I met this guy. I met this girl. They were really neat. And so I bet what I see uh, conforms to the neatness of the person I saw. How, you know, the, the person I saw and liked, I bet whatever I see is still like that, even though it might strike me funny. Mm. So, I think that the rule when you approach Scripture is it was written uh, for you, but not to you. Yeah. Right? You are not the target audience. If that's true, it's very badly written. Yeah. Because it doesn't tell you where half these places are Mm. or explain half of the what the names mean and and why things happen. Like, it doesn't do it. Mm. You You are tapping in. You are watching... It's the, same, it's the same thing as watching a family interact with their children that are like that, that are new to the area and their immigrant family or something. You're watching. So to get upset uh, is really uh, it's unfair and can frankly be a little bit lazy. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't really have a right to be. You yeah. know, when you're offended by something, your default should be, I bet I'm wrong. Mm. And I well, bet you that bet was... you don't understand. Yeah, that's what yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet yeah. I don't understand. I yeah. bet what makes me offended by this, if I knew it better, would make me less offended. Mm. You, What I'm trying to say is, you do this as a basic human interaction. The sc- scripture is written using basic languages maintain those same rules that you use in human interaction when you do scripture. Mm, That's what I'm saying. And so in one of your podcasts, you had used the phrase cross-cultural communication. And so is that to summarize what you just said, like when we approach scripture, it truly is a cross-cultural communication that we're experiencing. 
Yes, and worse than any that you experience on a day. Far more severe. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. when cross-cultural communication happens to you on the street or when you go to a restaurant that's a little outside of your norm, uh, when that happens, you're actually still talking to the person. Yeah, and there's nonverbal the, things that are going on too. That's yeah. right. And yeah. and you have a you have the ability to say, wait, go back. Uh, explain, explain yourself. That to me. Yeah. But scripture, it's written down and it's mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. And you read this thing. If you become the tyrant in in the fact that you're offended, you're actually breaking the way that you naturally communicate with people. Mm. Right. You're now the jerk in the room because you jumped to a conclusion. Yeah. So uh, this is also the sorts of things that archaeologists have discovered, the different kinds of writing in the, the context of the Bible. They're, they're instruments that, that shed so much more light on the foreignness to us of the yeah. world of scriptures, and that's some of the advantage of, spending a lot of time in it trying to understand these contexts and yeah really opens up this foreign world to us yeah yeah and as a student of scripture what you should really want to do because some of this stuff is it can feel like well shoot do i have to go learn all these ancient cultures and do i have to learn all these ancient languages yeah no it's the job of the people that have to make it accessible to you yeah 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 i think i was talking to some guys the other day and and we get this a lot i mean it you grow up in the church and you go to a Bible study in junior high school and you, you know, some, some leader or facilitator is sitting there and is like, okay, open up to Ephesians. All right, we're going to read, you know, Ephesians 2. And okay, great. We're going to go around the room. And we're going to ask the question, what does that mean to you? And so we're, we're very much conditioned from an early age to think about this epistemological issue that is where does meaning reside? Am I the arbiter of meaning or is there actually objective meaning. And, and obviously, when you get into some critical spaces, you have this idea of reader response where, hey, I'm reading this, and then I'm, I'm really determining the meaning myself, which I think is the default position of most people when they come to the Scriptures. They open it and they go, okay, I just read that. Sometimes you'll hear this in, in phrases like, well, that's just the plain reading of the text. And uh, look, there it is. It's, that's what it means to me. And so if you say that's not what it means— then all of a sudden you're you're denying the authority of Scripture or something like that. And uh, that's where a lot of times you'll get the phrase like, well, my Bible says this. And so talk to us. I, I was talking to some guys the other day, and I was like, hey, guys, when you read your meaning into the text, then what you're really doing is you're killing the author. So if you want to do that, then good luck with that, but it's not going to go well with you. So talk to us about that. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on where meaning resides, how do we get into the space where we can understand the meaning and not make it up for ourselves? So this can be treated in a really complicated philosophical way, but I think the don't, way... Don't do that. All right, I won't. <laughs> okay. But I think that the way that it can make the most sense is if you violate basic rules of talking to somebody, you're violating basic rules of reading. So if someone comes up to you and says, listen, I, I need to tell you about something you did that really hurt my feelings. Hmm. At that point, you're really like, oh, shoot, what did I do that hurt your feelings? Right? I, like, I need to actually understand. And you're listening, and you'll ask questions, and you'll, you'll investigate to understand. Like That same approach of, I need to understand what you are saying. If you, as soon as you abandon that, in the same way that that will destroy 
a relationship with a person, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it will destroy a functioning relationship with any text, and not just scripture. Yeah. Right? You'll you'll mow over any kind of communication if you you've decided that what you're interested in uh, supersedes what someone is interested in telling you. Mm. But there, you've uh, you've become the tyrant in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So was it Van Hooser that referred to those sorts of folks as exegetical conquistadors? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, the text is there for me to conquer it and make it what I want it to be. Yeah. Van Hooser yeah. talks about a, a covenant that we actually make with the text to discover its meaning and submit to it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Submit to mm-hmm. its terms. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's and good. I think that the 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 basic rules of communication that you operate in in daily life, you have to maintain those with a written text as much as you would with uh, just someone standing in front of you. Yeah. So why do you think that we've abandoned that? Why do you think we approach the text without that understanding of I want to know what the author is saying versus I want to know what I think it says? You know, so this is probably more just sociological, but I, I think we have just become so individualistic yeah, that's good. in our, our world and, and so self-centered, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is a, there's just no way to sugarcoat that, I guess, yep. where uh, everything matters as it matters to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything we do is turned into some kind of individual thing. The way we sing songs in church, the, the way we read scripture as promises to me, uh, it's it's just so far from so far removed from the world of mm. scripture at all. Yeah. So back to your thing where you said, "What does this mean to you?" Mm. I think if you're genuinely interested in communication from God, like if you were to sit there and tell me, "Hey, Scott, I just read Ephesians two, and uh, this is what it means to me," all I can think is, "I don't care what it means to you." <laughs> Like, yeah, I want to yeah, know. Yeah. I want to know what he's saying. Yeah. Why what do does I it, mean? it mean? Yeah. yeah. I want to know what it means, not what it means to you. What yeah, a useless good. thing. <laughs> what a useless. <laughs> so useless. Okay. So help us understand. So now we're in this tension of people understanding the text and needing these background studies or uh, whatever you may have as resources to help you understand better. So do we need these resources to understand or determine the meaning of the text? So uh, Scott doesn't read secondary literature, so we can't answer this. <laughs> I will say it is a wonderful time to be a speaker and reader of English and studying the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that you, I don't know how to put this. It's extremely important to do the sort of work that we're talking about here and that we take our students through and that we ourselves do. Here's the thing. You're talking about levels of precision yeah. and levels of depth in terms of, and, and, and even range of flavor. So uh, I think the analogy I use for my students is I, I start talking about my grandmother. Like my grandmother knows the text, my mama. She knows the text just backwards and forwards. And she knows the God of the text like you and I can only wish to. Mm-hmm. Right? She's remarkable. But when I can give her, there, there are elements that remain fuzzy to her because there are cultural elements that are just missing. And she's eager for them because they remain blurry and fuzzy. And I can give her a lens and she goes, ah, there it was. Mm. Now I can get with clarity the thing that was a little bit ambiguous to me. So, for example, in Genesis 1, you know God created. You don't walk away thinking, 
you know, I bet there were a bunch of gods that partly created the world and then had to redo it. Like, yeah, you get the you get the gist of the story. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. then when you can dive into the culture, you can now get the full range of depth and uh, elevations and flavors and colors and mm-hmm. like it's all over the place. So um, I, I think that now what Dan is talking about, that stuff is being made more accessible to people. So yep. you actually have access in uh, some pretty accessible secondary literature that Dan is aware of <laughs> uh, that, that makes this stuff uh, workable. Yeah. But yeah. It is so well, difficult ahead. to know how to trust which book or author, though, because there's yeah. just so much out there. Yeah. So yeah. It's, I, I don't mean to m- make light of it or oversimplify. Yep. In, in that regard. Yeah, because a lot of, let me just be honest, I mean, a lot of people are are doing uh, research. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good, and, and obviously there are people always fall on different sides of the coin on things. But I think to plug you guys, I think that that's one of the reasons that the Lord has raised up people who have a passion and a commitment to equip the church. We get these lists in the New Testament about the body of Christ, and uh, one guy's the head, and one guy's the mouth, and one guy's the legs, and and so I do think we, as people who are equipped, I mean, you guys are taking this seriously to be like, hey, you know, it's our job to equip the saints to do the work that God's given them to do, and this is part of that. Yeah, I, I'll just throw in the story. Part of the background of launching the seminary, I was at a conference uh, at St. Andrews in Scotland. It was Genesis and Christian Theology uh, Conference. There was about 50 of us there. And I remember sitting in this room at St. Andrews and, you know, 50 uh, top-notch scholars sitting in the room talking Genesis stuff. And I couldn't help but I, I kept looking out the windows and right across the street was St. Andrews Golf Course. I'm watching people play golf. I'm watching students walk by. And the thing that keeps going through my mind is what connection is there between what we're doing in this room as Bible scholars and what's going on out there with people living their lives. And part of the burden for me was this magnificent disconnect between Mm -hmm. the academy and the life of the everyday Christian. And so part of the whole ethos of the seminary is we're going to distill all of this crazy academic primary source weird language like all all that kind of stuff it's our job to distill that material in a way that can be presented to the pastors to our students who are pastors such that they get the heart of what they need to get that mm-hmm. they can pass on to their yeah. congregation. That's so great. So it's not throwing out academics. It's not getting rid of it, but it's making it accessible in a way that people can like relate to. Yeah, they can digest right. it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, Christians uh, have no fear of data, and they should dive in full bore and just go get it, because this information is there, and it will help you. Okay, so obviously out of this, we've gotten that, hey, like, context is really important. We have to understand, uh, like Scott said, that there is, and appreciate the fact that we do not live in an ancient Near Eastern culture, and so there is a lot of cross-cultural communication that's going on that's even more nuanced than regular cross-cultural communication because you're in, we're interacting with an ancient text. And so, um, man, we're going to keep going with these guys uh, through examples of the way this shows up, practical examples um, in the Old Testament. And then part three of this will be 
in the news. So stick with us and uh, listen to part two next week. We'll see you guys later. <laughs>